Hello, and welcome to the second ever Metrospective Live edition. I am Ted Berg. I am joined, as always, by the Athletics Mets beat writer, Tim Britton, and the Mets are both underway and undefeated. Tim, what's up? Ted, I feel like for the live rooms, we need uh, like a better, stronger intro, like a classic Chris Russo. Like, Hello. Good, yeah, like, uh, good. Good morning, everybody. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll build to that. We'll build to that. This is where, you know, like, I'm, I'm just trying to make sure I don't end up alone in the room. Uh, someone drew the comparison to Garth Algar when Wayne left. That's how I felt. I do. I do feel like I'm the Wayne in this relationship. And you are the Garth. Oh, uh, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about that one. We'll, we'll, I'll get back to you on that. I feel like I'm uh, I'm actually the guy in the middle seat in the Bohemian Rhapsody scene. <laughs> Uh, we have a lot of people have already joined the room, and so we should talk about the Mets. I'm going to challenge you to talk about the Mets first so I can tweet out a link to our live chat here. So tell me, uh, is this what you expected out of Tyler McGill? I wouldn't know. It wasn't quite what I expected. Uh, I didn't expect uh, 99-mile-an-hour fastballs. I didn't expect kind of precisely located glove-side change-ups uh, like he threw uh, on a couple of instances on Thursday night. You know, the, the Mets the Mets win on opening day. It didn't happen last year. Last year was strange. But usually, you know, over the last 53 years, they're 40 and 13 on opening day. Uh, and they usually win on opening day because they have a great starting pitcher. Um, you know, like you look at their history uh, and Tom Seaver was something like nine and two or eight and three on opening day. Uh, Doc Gooden started eight opening days and he was six and two or seven and one. Jacob deGrom uh, was, was two and one going into this year. You know, the, the Mets are good on opening day, probably because they usually have a really good number one starter. Uh, and so this year presented them a different challenge in the sense that their number one starter, even their number two starter, their numbers three through five starters were not the guy who got the ball on opening day. Uh, it was their least experienced opening day starter uh, in their franchise history. Uh, Tyler McGill, I think, was the fourth least experienced opening day starter for any team this century in terms of major league innings with just 89 and two thirds going into that game. Uh, and, you know, I, I think we, we talked about it probably a little bit last year with McGill and kind of the poise that he has and uh, kind of unflappability around him that uh, even when things did not go well for him at times last year, uh, it, he never seemed rattled on the mound. It, it never seemed like the moment was too big for him. And that's one of the reasons that uh, the Mets liked the idea of giving him the ball in this in this instance uh, on opening day even though you know he found out on Wednesday and certainly he lived up to that moment uh, he was cruising uh, through that Washington lineup really outside of the third inning when he struck out Juan Soto on a 98 mile an hour fastball mm-hmm. up came back from 2-0 down to get Nelson Cruz uh, the two guys in that lineup you, you really worry about on any given night uh, and then retired the next six would have gone deeper into the game I think if not for a the conditions and b that the the Mets had a couple of long half innings there in the top of the fifth and top of the sixth, uh, so they didn't want to extend McGill too far down the line if they didn't have to. And again, they were leading relatively comfortably at that point. Uh, so uh, you know, you couldn't, uh, as Buck Showalter said after the game, you couldn't ask for more uh, out of McGill. And that's not, you know, it's not just one win for them; it's an encouraging sign for what he can do uh, going forward because he's going to be in the rotation for a little while, like we talked about the other day on the podcast. Like he might be their best bet. To make, he might be one of the top guys you choose to make the most starts for this team over the course of the season, uh, given uh, the status of so many other pitchers in the rotation. So to have him come out and and have his first start look like this, 
uh, that's a really good thing for them to see. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, you made the point about about pulling him when they did. I thought that that was absolutely the right call. He had, though he, it was due to no fault of his own. He did have a couple of, of stressful moments there. There was a, uh, the Lindor uh, threw the ball away and, and got him in a little bit of trouble. And there was a, the, the chop hit that got him in a little trouble, like a bunch of a bunch of minor things that that uh, created traffic on the base paths. Also, it seemed like, you know, for all McGill was saying, oh, it's just another start. Um, as you pointed out in your recap, he threw, I think, his the three hardest pitches of his career in the first inning or something. So um, obviously he was a, a little bit dialed up for, for this outing, as anyone would be. And uh, I thought, you know, and something that has been, again, something you wrote about recently, something that has been a hallmark of, of Buck Showalter's managing has been that he is one of the very, very, very few managers in Major League Baseball as far as I know, one of the few managers in baseball history with a good reputation for handling his bullpen. A, a good reputation that is, has been sullied by the one that everyone remembers. Right, right. Uh, which the, is one the, thing, like, the one blemish, yeah. Right. Which was a horrible one, which was a horrible one, to be I fair. Know. Like, there was no excuse for that at the time. It wasn't like everyone's, oh, everyone's second-guessing it because it didn't work out. Everyone knew at the time. Like, I remember watching the game. I was like, what is he doing? Why is it Ubaldo Jimenez in this game when they got Zach Ritten? Uh, yeah, we have to forgive him. Everyone makes mistakes, right? Who knows? Right. We are not all our worst moments as in-game managers. Um, you know, and, and another thing that Showalter had said uh, going into the game was that, you know, they're, they're working with a nine-man bullpen currently. They've got a five-man bench. He wants to get players involved as quickly mm-hmm. as he can. Uh, it wouldn't be a surprise if, if, you know, every guy on that bench got a start between now and Certainly by next Wednesday, the, the series finale in Philadelphia, maybe even just this weekend in Washington, he said. Uh, you know, we saw last year what happened to the Mets uh, when that their initial schedule was really thrown off by the, the COVID cancellations in Washington and how they went from, you know, the last spring game to their opening day game. There was a stretch of about four or five days where they didn't play. Uh, and how that really messed with a lot of guys' timings. You don't, you don't want that to happen even to your bench players. So he's going to try to get, you know, the Travis Jankowski's, Luis Guillorme's, Tomas Nito's uh, in the game uh, over the next couple of days. And that, that the same goes for the bullpen. You've got nine guys down there. You've got four of them in the game last night. Probably your four main ones because uh, it's opening day and you like to pitch those guys kind of in sequence the way they did. Uh, I thought it was interesting that he went with uh, Trevor May for the sixth inning ahead of uh, mm-hmm. Adam Onovino or Seth Lugo, and I think he did that because of the way the, the batting order was, was aligned, that, you know, he had May up in the fifth, because in case McGill ran into trouble in that inning, you probably didn't want him facing Soto and Cruz a third time, and you wanted, right. your, you know, your best non-closing reliever to shut that down in that instance, and that would be Trevor May. So I thought uh, just the, the way he ordered those guys was interesting, and, and we'll see how that plays out over time. But again, we'll, we'll see probably, you know, I don't know that we'll see a Mets starter see the seventh inning <laughs> over the course of the next, uh, the, this first turn through, maybe the first couple turns through. Uh, and so we're going to see some of those other bullpen pieces now over the next couple of days uh, get their work in to stay fresh uh, after spring training. Yeah, I would say, I mean, Scherzer is maybe the one exception where if he's working efficiently, since we have seen him throw six innings in the spring, like maybe he does get into the seventh. I wanted to make one more point about Tyler McGill. Um, and before I do, I should note, if you want to join us on stage and ask us a question, hear your voice live on the Metrospective podcast. Uh, just hit respect, request to speak 
uh, in your app or in the in the Metrospective live room, uh, and we very well might let you up on stage to ask a question. Um, something I think is under-discussed in regards to Tyler McGill that came up in an interview with his parents last season on air is that his name, it's always been spelled the, the T-Y-L-O-R, but until high school, his parents, his whole family, they just called him Tyler. It was spelled Tyler, but pronounced Tyler. And then he decided on his own, I'm Tyler now. And that, that to me suggests uh, a type of uh, single-minded badassery that will serve him well as a starting pitcher for the New York Mets. I, get, I can just say, Lore. Don't call I, me Tyler. It's, say it as it's spelled. It's Tyler. I can just imagine the conversation in like the, the Moneyball scene of Oakland A's scouts discussing what it means that Tyler McGill decided single-handedly to, to alter the pronunciation of his first name and what that means for his fastball velocity. Like, it's this guy, uh, Emo, what's his deal? <laughs> Uh, what does it say about cool. about the quality of his face, you know? It sounds so much more, like, just Tyler. I, and no offense to anyone named Ty, Like, Tyler is a fine name. You can be Ty. There's nothing wrong with Tyler as a name. But just, like, in terms of toughness, there's just really no comparing Tyler to Tyler. <laughs> He's looking to go down in Mets lore, uh, you know, with, with his... He, his stuff he is um adam Adovino, and it's one it's one outing and you know we know we know he has special type of stuff and we know that uh for adam for Adovino, the issue is when it when it stops being so sharp and when he starts walking a few too many guys but man Adovino looked good last night yeah i mean it the stuff looks sharp the slider is it's i think What's cool about having him in this bullpen is, uh, you know, there are there are other guys here who throw sliders. Uh, most of them don't throw them like him. You know, like Trevor right. May's slider is as a north to south slider, uh, and and Adovino's is very much east to west. Uh, so it's it's a different look, even if the the repertoire looks the same on paper. Uh, certainly different velocity than May as well. You know, it's seven eight nine in a Nationals lineup. Uh, that that does not look very deep that that Adovino worked to, uh, but you you know you want to get everyone off on a good foot and and really every, every pitcher who took them out you know besides May who gives up the the moonshot to Soto uh, looked really sharp last night uh, and that's a, that's a good step for the Mets. I've seen some pretty good pitchers struggle with Alcides Escobar. I don't remember where. <laughs> uh, I thought it was great. I mean, I it's, I've seen it already making the rounds in in GIF form today, but the uh, like, you know, the, you mentioned the moonshot to Juan Soto. It wasn't like Tyler May thought he got away with it. You know, thought, thought like, oh, I made a great pitch and, and uh, he just hit it. Like, he he flinched before Soto even swung. Like, it was like he let go of the ball. It was like home run. Yeah, you you know, I think, um, you know, Juan Soto to me is the best hitter in the National League. And I don't know who's second. <laughs> you know, he's, oh, yeah. he's so far ahead of, of anyone else. Uh, in the NL offensively to me. Uh, and I, I think it's it's going to be really interesting to see. Well, I, I don't know if interesting is the right word. Uh, not Certainly not for people in Washington uh, to see how this team does over the course of the year. That was like the most depressing opening day scene that I've experienced as a beat writer. I've only done, this is only 13 opening days, so you don't know. But uh, like, the, the crowd was not particularly into the game to begin with because of the weather delays and all that. Mm-hmm. The weather was not good. Um, 
and then you know they were emptying out in a four nothing game in the fifth inning. Uh, it was it was very strange atmosphere for opening day, and you know I. I'd kind of really, you know, I knew the Nationals were not going to be a team that competed uh, in the National League East and, and would win 95 games or anything like that. But seeing, you know, what their pitching staff looks like, you know, they got a, a pretty good start from Patrick Corbin uh, and seeing kind of the underbelly of their bullpen and the guys, they're going to be throwing in a lot of fifth, sixth, seventh innings this year. Uh, and just looking at how their lineup really tails off after a while, you know, Soto and Cruz are, are basically, you know, and, and, Josh Bell, too, if he has a, a good year again. Like, you've got those three guys, and then there's no one else that you really think that, you know, can't let that guy beat me in a big spot uh, at this point in their careers. So uh, I wasn't, like, optimistic about the Nationals' chances going into last night, but I am more pessimistic about them now than I was before. Yeah, it's a funny thing. Um, Michael Franco, despite what you might think if you've only been watching Mets games for the past 10 years, not actually that good of a player. <laughs> right. You know, Franco, Cesar Hernandez is, is fine, but, uh, you know, is, is not a guy who really changes what, what your expectations are for your team. Kbert Ruiz had a, a really nice game last night for Washington. That, that, he was the one standout for them besides Soto. Uh, and, you know, for, from their, for their sake, they hope he develops into uh, a, a keystone behind the, behind the dish. Uh, over the next couple of years. But, you know, I don't, I don't think this is a long rebuild they're going to do. I think they'll be good in a couple of years. Uh, you know, they've got the financial resources to do that. Uh, but it was surprising to, to see them on the field and be like, oh, like, they are, they are the Marlins this year. That's what they're going to be. They're going to be a, a 65-win team for the entirety of the season, maybe worse, uh, as opposed to last year when they were just that for the last two months. Right. It is... They are the bad team, and I mean, it looks it looks like, and, and who knows, right? Anything can happen. Things can, P teams can surprise you. Maybe, like you said, like maybe Kiber Ruiz is ready to be an all star already. Um, but the, you look at the pitching staff, Patrick Corbin as your ace. You look at the, yeah, like you said, a, a very shallow lineup around two exceptionally good hitters. Like Juan Soto is, but you you said the best hitter in the National League, like. I don't even know if that goes far enough. Like, I think this guy might be the second coming of Ted Williams. I'm not even kidding. Like, he just the 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 precocious plate discipline is is so rare and so incredible in his case that uh, it feels like that just really like the sky is the limit in terms of uh, you know his offense. But uh, like I said, the Nationals not going to be good. Another uh, thing I got going on that I want to I'm wondering about here, Tim, is we have. Uh, 57 people currently in the room listening, and on my phone, it doesn't look like any of them have stepped up to share the stage with us. Now, I don't know if that's because they're mesmerized by the quality of our conversation, or if I'm just not seeing the thing right, If I because we had that issue last week. Uh, can you see if anyone is waiting to to join us on stage? No, they're, they're all mes- they're all mesmerized. Oh, uh, so, if you're out there and you have a question, like now is your chance. You will get on stage. This is a big deal, folks. This is a big deal. Like when uh, when this show blows up, you, you're going to be able to say I was one of the first people. Uh, I was. You can say I was. You can even say I was the first guest of the 2022 regular season on the Metrospective to join the stage. So uh, please do come ask us questions if you have them. What do we expect out of Max Scherzer in his return to Washington, D.C.? We're expecting some sort of tribute to him before the game. We may not be able to see the game if we can't figure out Apple TV, but uh, what's Scherzer going to do? 
Yeah, you know, Scherzer, they did the, the video tribute to him uh, last night before the game. Oh, that was, was, I thought it was going to be tonight. I'm sorry. Yeah. It was it was nicely done. Uh, it was I would say it was uh, several times longer than the video tribute that the Mets memorably did for Matt Harvey uh, in 2018 when he came back as a member of the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, that Scherzer got you know he got one of the loudest ovations of the night uh, during the opening day introductions. The line you know with players line up on the baselines. Uh, it was kind of him, Sean Doolittle, and Juan Soto were the three guys who got it. ovations. Scherzer got one before and after that video tribute. Uh, you know, the, the mural of, of him staring at you in right field with, with his, his two colored eyes, uh, that has been taken down, unfortunately. It would have That's been cool it. for the road pitcher to have that uh, behind right. him in a game on Friday. You know, he went through all of his, his, his fielding drills on Thursday. His fielding drills took place in left field uh, on the, the wet grass because the tarp, the tarp was on the field. So, you know, it's probably not an ideal scenario to go through pitcher fielding practice without a mound, but uh, he feels good. He, this is, a, you know, uh, hamstring issues are things he has pitched through throughout mm-hmm. his career. Uh, when I talked to him uh, in February before the start of spring training and was just, you know, asking him about his offseason routine, how he knows when he can pitch and when he can't pitch. He used hamstring injuries as an example of when he can pitch. Um you know, that it's just a matter of him getting through the baseball, getting the type of finish he wants on his pitches. Uh, that said, you know, he was very, he was stretched out. You know, he was six innings, uh, 90 pitches, basically, uh, at, in spring training and was ready to go seven and 100 in that last inner squad scrimmage that he was scratched from. He doesn't know exactly how deep he can go into, into the game tonight. Uh, he said, you know, when you're dealing with an injury, you don't really set that, that kind of expectation. You just kind of live in the moment and go as far as you can. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if he was able to go six. Uh, it would surprise me if he came back out for a seventh inning. Um, it also wouldn't surprise me if he pitched four really strong innings and the Mets said, OK, that's that's what we're looking for today. Uh, so, you know, there's a pretty wide range in, in, in how long he might go in this game. Uh, but, I, you know. It's Max Scherzer. You expect him to pitch well, right? <laughs> like, you're yeah. not thinking that uh, he's going to go out and, and throw three and a third, give up six runs. Uh, I think, you know, he looked really good throughout spring training. Uh, he looked really ready throughout spring training in a way that, that other pitchers maybe didn't at times. Uh, and so, you know, I, I've wondered at times whether the, the classic early season case of, uh, well, the pitchers are ahead of the hitters isn't true this year because the pitchers have not had time to ramp up. Mm-hmm. I do think that, you know, Outside of this last hiccup that that ha- that Scherzer had with his hamstring, he was ahead of the hitters, uh, and he might still be tonight. He is generally ahead of the hitters. Um, we have a number of people have taken the opportunity for this historic moment of joining the Metrospective Live. We're going to start uh, with Christian B, who it will join us on stage now. Christian, welcome and uh, congratulations. Hi. How's it going? Uh, How's it going? Good, good. I'm actually in D.C. right now, about five minutes from the ballpark, uh, by chance. So, uh, yeah, I was there last night, really enjoyed it, uh, despite the wet weather, a lot of Mets fans. But one question I had for you guys was, gotta say, liked what I saw from the outfield players of the Mets, uh, McNeil, Canna, Marte, and Cano, frankly. And it seems like one of those guys is going to have to lose time when Nimmo comes back who is, of course, good. And I guess I was just wondering what you guys see their, like, rotation there be. Like, who loses the most time when Nimmo's around playing every day, essentially? Who's the not-everyday player there? 
Yeah, that's that's yeah. a good question, Christian. Um, and I, I do like how you you threw in Nimmo, who is good because not every Mets fan feels that yeah, way. No, I, I love Nimmo. I love Nimmo. He's really good. He's really good. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I do think that, you know, the regular, like if Nimmo were healthy last night, I don't think Robinson Cano is in the opening day lineup. I think, you know, that's, uh, you, you push a bunch of people uh, up, and you, you drop J.D. Davis maybe in the lineup, uh, you push, you put Nimmo at the top, uh, you take Cano out, uh, and, and McNeil would have been at second base. Uh, I think that's probably their regular lineup against lefties would, would be, uh, you know, Canna, Nimmo, Marte in the outfield, uh, McNeil at second, and Davis as their D.H., uh, you know, against uh, I'll be interested in seeing, you know, if Nemo can take the field today, uh, what they do against righties, whether that is uh, Cano as your DH, whether it's Dom Smith, whether they mix it. I think the DH spot is where they're going to get more creative with timeshares. Uh, and, the, you know, by DH spot, that doesn't just mean the person who is specifically designated hitting that night, but it, it could be, you know, Dom Smith plays first and Pete Alonso is your DH, that kind of thing to give those regular fielders, uh, that half game off that American League managers have talked about for decades. Uh, you know, in the outfield, uh, I think Marte is probably the guy who's going to play the most games in the outfield, provided he stays healthy, followed by Nimmo and then Canna. They might, you know, Canna might be the guy who plays 135 uh, healthy games this year versus, you know, starting 155. Of course, that's in an ideal scenario. It could be that Mark Canna plays 155 because he's the only outfielder who stays healthy. Uh, but I think that's probably how they've drawn it up. Uh, and they'll see how it goes and adapt from there. You know, the the thing you like is, you know, three years ago when they played here, as I wrote my story, Robinson Cano was the big shiny new addition hitting third in their lineup as a 36-year-old second baseman. This year, when he still catalyzed the offense uh, the way he did last night, he's the 39-year-old 10th or 11th player on the roster uh, who fills in when someone else is out. Uh, and that's a lot better spot to be in as a you know, with your position player core than they were a couple of years ago. And he is full of guile. Uh, just to, to make a point that, that referenced something Tim mentioned earlier uh, to Christian's question that I think is uh, – I, that I hope to see is I think there really is value in keeping everyone as involved as possible, especially on a team where they're so deep with, like, slightly above average major league hitters, right? Like, they, uh, we've discussed this uh, before. They have so many good hitters. And a couple of guys you'd say are very good hitters, but really it's like – Oh, Eduardo Escobar, Marcana, and and uh, and um, and McNeil, and Dom Smith, and, and all these guys who you think are going to give you like a 110 to 120 OPS plus. And so um, I think keeping everyone involved and trying to and trying to exploit uh, every possible matchup as best as you can is is probably the best way forward. But thank Christian, that's a great question, and thank you for it. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. 
Thank yeah, you. I, yeah. I always think of, uh, I don't know if you remember this, Ted, but 2006 Mets, like they had Jose Valentin on the opening day roster, uh, and he got off to a miserable start being used as a pinch hitter. Uh, he was like, oh, for mm-hmm. April or something like that. And uh, Willie Randolph said, like, I have to get Valentin at bat. Got to get so him going. Start him. Got to get him going. That was <laughs> the get him going. Main, main thing. He always had to get someone going. Uh, and so they, they they gave him maybe it was just two starts in a row in, in like a corner outfield spot. I don't even know if he got hits in those games. But afterward, you know, Jose Valentin had ended up having a, a really solid offensive season for the Mets and became their starting second baseman. Uh, it's It's funny to me how quickly – fans' perceptions of players get uh, solidified this time of year. Three years ago, a lot of Mets fans really disliked J.D. Davis because he was getting starts against left-handed pitching uh, instead of Jeff McNeil uh, early in that season. Uh, And now fans feel differently about him because J.D. Davis had a very good 2019, uh, and they feel differently about him because he didn't have as good a 2020 and 2021. But you've got to give players time to find their rhythm and find their timing this time of year. Uh, and I think Showalter is going to try to do that over the next week or so. Nicholas B., you are joining us on the stage. What is up? Greetings. Uh, I saw Joely Rodriguez warming up late in the game, and I was wondering, is Rodriguez going to be the Mets' late-game left-hander, or is Jason Shreve, or is it going to be left-hander by committee? I think it's probably left-hander by committee. It's 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 probably whoever – does the best with that and runs with it. Uh, I think Rodriguez has better numbers against lefties specifically than Shreve, but Shreve handles both sides better. You know, Rodriguez has really struggled against righties at times over the last last two years. Uh, and I think, you know, he was better with the Yankees last season in part because they shielded him from the toughest right-handed hitters. So uh, I, I noticed, yeah, he was, he was warming up with Lugo there late in the game. Um, I'm interested in it, like you, I'm interested in seeing how they build that hierarchy out for, for late game relievers, how much they trust either of those guys in late game spots versus Lugo and May Diaz and, and Adovino, uh, whether they, they are a predominantly right-handed back end of the bullpen, or if they do give lefty, you know, if they give chase and Shreve a seventh inning when Juan Soto is coming up for the nationals, uh, that, that will be interesting to see how, how they handle that over the course of the first couple of weeks as, as the bullpen kind of structures itself. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you think any uh, of the relievers other than Lugo will throw multiple innings this year or uh, typically? Uh, I mean, I think you, you've got your long men like Trevor Williams and Sean Reed Foley uh, are, are there to do that. Sure. Um, and Shreve, I think, has that capability. And, and maybe the reason they, they were so keen on adding a second lefty was to allow him to do that at times. Especially, you know, probably not early in the season when they've got the full nine-man or even ten-man pen if they want to go that way. But when you get down to more, a more reasonably sized and only eight-man bullpen, uh, maybe then you look at, at him as a, a multi-inning guy. You know, Showalter said in spring training he didn't – ideally he wouldn't even use Lugo for, for more than three outs because, you know, you want to be able to sequence it one inning, one inning, one inning, and then everyone's available the next day. Uh, but I, I do think there will be times, like we talked about on the last podcast, where, where Seth Lugo is really helpful in his ability to go four, five, six, even more than that outs uh, in, a, in a tough spot. I have a question for you, Tim, and for you, Nicholas. Okay. Ha- have you guys seen what the Yankees did to Miguel Castro? Yes, well, they <laughs> shaved him. It's horrible. That, is a, that guy had the coolest look. That guy is like the coolest looking guy on the Mets, and now they know he just looks like some guy. He looks like an accountant. I hate it. Like, I can't believe they're able to get away with that rule. Nick, uh, Nicholas, thank you for an excellent thank you. question. Uh, thanks for listening. We have 
David W. I couldn't agree more on the Castro thing. The Yankees, they could stop it. I live in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and I go to the uh, Little League Classic every year, and I have it on good authority that the Yankees absolutely refuse to play the game on top of everything else. <laughs> My question for you is, do you think Max hits a guy tonight? Uh, you know, I, I think – Look, the, I saw Starling Marte with holding up the three fingers late last night uh, when, when Alonzo was hit, uh, and Showalter was clearly not happy and, and mentioned it after the game that he wasn't happy about it. He, didn't, he was asked if he thought anything was intentional, uh, and he, he said he was not going to get into that or answer that question, now or ever, really. Um, and I don't think any of those were intentional. Certainly the first one to James McCann, I think you feel kind of uh, some shame in including because it was a back foot slider that McCann just kind of, uh, you know, did not get out of the way of aggressively, let's say that, uh, to drive in that first run. You know, the second one to McCann, if, if, if McCann were hit by the first pitches next time up, I might have thought there was some intent there. He was hit by a one-two pitch uh, on a fastball up and in. Uh, and then the one to, to Alonzo, I think, you know, sadly, this is what happens when you face bad bullpens is you face guys who are throwing hard and who don't know how to locate it. Uh, and you're going to see uh, instances like this. So it's, it's why you see so many more players wearing C flaps uh, the way Alonzo does. And he was saying after the game, you know, if, if he didn't have that C flap on, which is what I believe hit him in the mouth, it was the it was the, the part of the helmet that got hit by the, the pitch and jammed into his lip to, to break it open a little bit uh, that he, he probably would have lost some teeth. Uh, and that's that's scary. Uh, I, I can imagine Scherzer establishing the inside corner with some authority. Um, but but I don't know that I don't know that he's going to stick one in between the twos on Juan Soto's back to send a message. Maybe. But I, I think that's probably even more complicated by the fact that he is pitching against his former team. That's his friend. Juan Soto <laughs> came to watch him pitch in the playoffs. I, I don't think. I don't think, I mean, like, I think it's a valid question because I, like, they're, they, the Mets clearly were displeased with the, the, the hit by pitches last night, uh, and rightfully so, but I didn't, I didn't think there was any intent in any of them. I don't know why the, the Nationals on day one would be eager to start a beanball war with the Mets, um, and I don't think uh, a better, t- I don't think you want to go down that route with the Nationals because all you can do, it's a team you're supposed to be beating up on anyway. Um, I don't believe that you're gonna like wake them up like your your lastings Marlin lastings millage on the uh, against the Marlins on the last day of 2007 or whatever. But uh, I also don't think like you're gonna risk player health over like some minor spat you're starting on your own because the Nationals bullpen can't throw strikes. And I, I know we talk about a lot of Mets get hit, and you know that they they get hit by pitches more than they hit other teams with pitches uh, and you can say, Oh, that's not guys protecting their hitters. I think a lot of Mets, you know, a lot of Mets have uh, approaches at the plate that lend to them getting hit by pitches. You know, we've seen it with, with Brandon Nimmo over time. We've seen it with Jeff McNeil. We've seen it with JD Davis in spring training, getting hit four or five times. Mark Canna has gotten hit a lot. Uh, that that's part of their on base percentages. Really. It's a repeatable uh, skill. It's, it's yeah. easy to say, but it is a repeat. You know, I'm like with a guy like Nimmo who, who tends who does get injured a little bit? You you kind of wish you know you would take a dock a few points in on base percentage for him to protect himself a little bit better. I can't think of him getting hurt being hit by a pitch though. And and uh, you know if you look the guys who get hit by pitch um, frequently like that like it it is something they repeat over time. It's not like a, a function of randomness, and it is something that does you know getting on base fifteen extra times a season because you're hit by pitch at that. Um, that makes an impact on your on-base percentage and, and your value. And, and obviously you worry about the pitches up and in like last night. 
but you also worry about the ones in on the hands because mm-hmm. Nimmo, if you remember in 2018, he didn't miss a lot of time, but he missed a little bit of time because he got hit on his hand. Uh, and then his production kind of dipped for a while before he was able to, to rebuild strength in there. We've already talked about JD Davis having the offseason surgery after getting hit in the hand by Zach Wheeler in the second game of the season last year uh, and how that affected his season. Pete Alonso has broken bones in his hands three times off of uh, hit by pitches uh, in college and, and in the minor leagues. That's why he wears the large guard on his left hand uh, when he bats. So I, th- I think when you're thinking about the injuries you might get from a hit by a pitch, you're always thinking of something really scary and really serious up and in. But it's uh, a lot of times it's the things on the hand. Uh, there are so many small bones in there. Uh, and the strength in your hands is such an important part to hitting that that's really where uh, it can affect a team that gets hit as often as the Mets do. We've got two more people with questions. We're going to take both of them and then call it a day. First up is Tom K, who is now joining us on the stage. Tom, what have you got? Hey, guys. Can you hear me? Are we yes. Can? All right. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. God, thanks a lot for doing this, guys. Again, we really do appreciate it. Um, uh, but my question is, so, I mean, again, I might be getting way ahead of myself. And by might, I mean, I totally am. Um, just You're a Mets fan. You're permitted. Yeah, exactly. With Tyler McGill last night. My question is, is if DeGrom comes back in two months, you know, we'll say ideally, right? And everyone's pitching well, like, are we going to do a six-man rotation or who's going to be relegated to the bullpen? If it's, you know, Walker, Carrasco. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of just my question. Because, I mean, if Miguel uh, pitches even a little bit like last night, I, you can't take him out of the rotation. I think if the question is, like, if, if DeGrom comes back fully healthy, who starts game one of the World Series? Is it McGill or DeGrom? <laughs> if we're getting Fair enough. Ourselves. Fair enough. Yeah. Tim, Tim, what do you think? You know, I think it, obviously it, it comes down to kind of you said, you know, everyone's pitching well. It's, well, how well is everyone pitching? If Tyler McGill is sitting on a, a 1-8 ERA and is pitching the way he did last night every time out there hitting 99, uh, it becomes a lot more difficult. And, and, you know, Carlos Carrasco is pitching well. He's got a 3-7, you know. That's a different conversation than if everyone's got a 3-5 and you feel pretty good about all six guys. Uh, yeah, I was, that more, case, I was more saying if everyone's kind of like average, you know, like just they're, they're doing their own stuff. Like not Walker at the beginning of the first half of last year, not Carrasco the, when he came back um, last year. You know, like kind of in the middle. Would they do a six-man rotation just to keep DeGrom and Scherzer fresh and healthy? Um, that was kind of more my, my thought process there. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's something they can consider. Uh, you know, I, I wondered if uh, if – teams are going to consider that coming out of spring training this year because of, of uh, how unstretched out a lot of, a lot of starting pitchers were to give them that extra day. The, the angels, uh, I think the Mariners are doing a six man. I think they did a six man last year. Uh, the Brewers did a six day rotation, which is, you know, they have that extra guy who start. If, if you don't have an off day, then they throw in a sixth starter. If you do have an mm-hmm. off day, you keep the five on turn. Uh, rotation that might be what you see the Mets do more often uh, something like that where you know McGill is not starting every turn but if there's no off day you give him a start that kind of thing uh, I think you know all things created equal McGill would would be the lowest on that that pecking order because a he's got options and, and b he's got the least amount of, of track record uh, and the least amount of you know like he's not built out to be a 200 inning guy for you for instance uh, but uh, I do think they, they can be creative with that uh, if they reach that point. And, 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 you know, that's probably like the worst news for Trevor Williams, who's going to be the long man in the rotation. If they're going to a six man rotation, uh, that's the spot in the bullpen that you might not be able to use or to have on your roster as much. He might be the odd man out more than anyone else. It would be an amazing problem to have. Um, something else I'd just point out. Uh, 
I think, and, and with DeGrom especially, like we know he is so particular about his habits. And so I think sometimes you think like, oh, it, it's a good idea to, to go six-man rotation. So to give this guy as much time off as possible. And, and I kind of agree with that. But if, it, if DeGrom himself is particular about his routine, I kind of prefer – um, what you're saying, like, is that the, what the Brewers did last year, where you're keeping everybody on a very set schedule rather than just, okay, we're going six men in there, too. Some days you'll have five days between starts. Some days you'll have eight days between starts. Um, I think you got to prioritize DeGrom and Scherzer, obviously. I think they will. Um, and so I think that, that if you get to that point, I think it starts with a conversation with those guys. I think another factor to consider, and I was thinking this, thinking about this watching McGill last night, is which of these guys best translates to the bullpen if need be and McGill throwing 99 assuming he could he could maybe sustain that in a bullpen role with with the good breaking with the sharp breaking stuff like that to me I you'd rather have a starter you'd rather have more innings it's a it's a more valuable position um if you get to the point where you need to cut someone and and all things are equal and you need to send someone to the bullpen to me it's that guy we know has the slow heartbeat. We know is being praised for keeping his cool, and we know is is going to hit triple digits. So why not Jacob Degrom, elite two inning closer on a regular basis, Ted? Um, because because of the routine thing, right? Because I, I think it's, I think you'd get him hurt. You know, like I, honestly, like I like I said before, like I I am in the camp where like you should make every pitch count for Degrom. Like I would. If if it weren't for all the injuries, I would say like have him do his throw days as as a one inning relief stint, things like that. But um, I think you have to defer to what he wants more than anything because he's too good to mess with in any way. Yeah, and and he's a guy who uh, he, you know most pitchers like pitch starting on four or five days rest. They they really dislike six, seven, anything longer than that. Get it really throws them off. There are some pitchers who uh, are like vehement about starting on four days rest. Uh, David Price, uh, when he was with the Red Sox and I covered him, he really liked starting on his regular fifth day. He didn't want the extra day of rest. Marcus Stroman last year, uh, the Mets routinely used, you know, had him start on his fifth day. They would rearrange some guys around him to give them rest because he liked that regular routine. DeGrom is not, uh, isn't, doesn't care that much about it, but I think if he were starting on a, you know, having six days rest, that would, that would start to mess with him a little bit more than he would like. Tom, thank you again for the question. Yeah, no problem, guys. Yeah, I, I, what's good is McGill's not going to be making that much, so now next uh, offseason we can just sign Judge for whatever we want. Now the Yankees are going to pay him. So <laughs> it all works out in the end for us. I'm holding out for one Soto personally. Thank <laughs> you, Tom. Matt Marte Soto, Judge. Oh, I cut off Tom mid-sentence. I didn't do it on purpose. I feel bad. Tom, I'm sorry. He was making a good point, I'm sure. I had already hit the button. And so he got a few more words in there. Was, my bad. That's a my he bad. He was saying that you don't have to choose between Soto and Judge. You can you can have both of them. Flanking oh, Starling Marte. That's, the that's a man of uh, that's it's the Steve Cohen Mets baby. Last question <laughs> of the day comes from Matt A. Matt, thank you for joining us. What is going on? Hey guys. Um, one thing from last night that seemed to me a little too similar to last season. Obviously, a good a good start, but. And Tim, I think you wrote about this last year. Does this offense still profile a little bit too much to be walk slash single heavy in terms of thinking about getting that multi-run scoring hit? And if so, is there an answer to that? Uh, I, I do think there there is there is more power in this lineup than there was last year, uh, just with. Uh, 
you know, they added Escobar in that, that, that way. Uh, I, I'm a little, I would be a little concerned about it. I think it's hard to, to gauge a, a team's power, a lineup's power potential uh, in April in the Northeast. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in seeing kind of how they look compared to the Phillies uh, on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday uh, in Philadelphia. I think it is supposed to be relatively nice weather, uh, you know, good spring weather where the ball might actually fly. Um, you know, there were a couple of balls hit last night, more so by Washington than, than by the Mets that, you know, you can imagine in July are leaving that ballpark. Uh, you know, the, the, the good news is even if the Mets are constructed more as a turn the lineup over kind of offense rather than a, a bloop and blast kind of offense. Uh, it's deeper than it has been in years past. Um, but at the same time, that depth is built is predicated on some of the guys who had down years last year, not having as down a year this year or being healthy, healthy for longer. It's having Nimmo for 140 games rather than 90. Uh, it's Jeff McNeil looking better than he did last year. Uh, it's having Davis in the lineup more consistently or Dom Smith hitting better than they did last year. And the guys you added, Escobar, Canna, Marte being healthy and productive in that lineup. You know, th- I'm not ready to anoint this offense one of the, the best in the National League. I think it's got that potential if it has the right guys have the right kinds of seasons. But uh, they're not going to outslug you on a nightly basis the way the Phillies are built to. Really, you look at Washington's lineup, like that's their hope uh, in terms of, of winning games is having Soto and Cruz combined for 80 home runs uh, and getting some pop from Josh Bell and Lane Thomas and those guys behind them, Michael Franco. Uh, like they're going to have to homer to beat you uh, in a way that the Mets probably won't have to on a consistent basis. But, you know, you still want to be able to do uh, at times to win games when you're going up against good pitching. This is a stretch of a segue, but it's something that I've had on my mind for a while, and I just want to put it out there now because I was going to say in the last show that I thought Tyler McGill was going to have a really nice season. I didn't, and now I can't say it because he just had a great start. So I will say I want, and I, I can see a route, July. Mets pitching is, is looking good. They're in the mix. They need one extra bat in the lineup, and Joey Votto is on the table, and they can make a move. Can we? Can I fantasize about this, Tim? Can is it fair to fantasize about Joey Votto plus splitting first base DH duties with with Pete Alonso come July? You know, but Joey Votto, he just he's not good in in RBI spots, Ted. He doesn't swing the bat. He doesn't no, hit for enough see. power, and he walks too much. Oh, we're done with that. It's not it's not 2011, right? It's everybody <laughs> knows. Everybody knows the guy's the, one of the best hitters uh, of his generation. He's older now, but he's still hitting home runs. He it seems like he gets a new thing, like a new adjustment all the time. Uh, he's already said he wants to take it easy, so like that makes me believe he would be happy to settle into a part time DH, part time first baseman type role, especially if it meant competing for a championship. Um, I would just love to see Joey Votto on the Mets. Wouldn't that be so cool? Yeah, I actually don't know what his contract status is currently. Uh, how sure much, how no much time is left on that? Uh, how I much is left on that deal? I, I, I do. Yeah, and... Next year is the last year. Okay. Uh, it's, and... option. It's, it's 2023 20, is the last year, and there's a team option for 2024. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I assume he has a full no trade clause, but why wouldn't you want to be out of Cincinnati if you're Joey Votto at this point? Like he's, he's grumbled quite a bit. Obviously, he's been there his whole career. There's, I'm sure he has lots of personal ties. But, uh, you know, you get to come play with the Mets here and, you know, maybe come into the Metrospective live room even. <laughs> you know, I see Trent Rosecrans, our guy who covers the Reds and has a great relationship with Votto. He could get him into the live room in a way that it, I think would be difficult for us. Uh, the, the thing we about Votto. see Trent, though. Like, I, I, we're friends with Trent, right? We can, I don't know, cozy up to him. We get him in the live room a few times and then be like, hey, next time you swing by, you want to bring your friend Joey Votto. 
<laughs> Let's call Joey V to the stage. Um, have you ever talked to Joey Votto? He's a fascinating dude. I, I've, I've never talked to him one-on-one. I read uh, Trent's stories all the time that are great with him. The, the fascinating thing about Votto uh, is that, uh, like, I, I make fun of the, the approach that, that he was ridi- ridiculously criticized for for a while in Cincinnati. And, like, he is hitting for more power now. Like, he, his second half last year, he really exploded uh, as a home run hitter. And, and he told Trent earlier uh, this, this spring, and I don't, you know, maybe it was the whole core of, of Reds reporters, but I read it when Trent wrote it, uh, that, you know, that was part of a, a kind of a plan to kind of tinker with his approach a little where he was going to, he was going to give up some of the on-base numbers in order to get to more power. Uh, and I'm really interested in, in seeing uh, how that plays out over 162 for a guy at his age, a guy who, you know, ha- has won the one MVP and has had a couple other years that are, are, you know, pretty worthy of MVP consideration for, for Cincinnati. Uh, that would be, you know, this is it's day two of the season. It is get ahead of yourself day uh, in in Major League Baseball. That is that, that is one where we're getting ahead of ourselves. But it would be fun to contemplate come June and July. The first time I spoke with Joey Votto, it was just a I'm sharing this anecdote because it's an eye opening one only really for people who have covered the Mets or the Yankees professionally. But um, I had come. It was my first my first spring training at USA Lay. I went out to, I think they, the Reds might have been, like, by chance, just the first team I visited that year because of the schedule worked out for me. Um, and I was coming from SNY having only covered the Mets and the Yankees. And I went, I was just sort of milling about the locker room in, in Goodyear because, you know, like, when, when you're covering the Mets and Yankees, you mill about and, like, the when someone noteworthy comes out to speak, uh, 30 reporters will go flock to that person. Um, not so in the Cincinnati Reds room. There are not nearly as many reporters. Um, the Reds, a uh, very helpful media relations guy, came up to me and said, like, hey, who are you looking to talk to? And so, like, I kind of panicked and I said, I don't know, Joey Votto? And he's like, oh, he's in the trainer's room right now. And I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. He's like, Let me go grab, grab him. And <laughs> He goes into the trainer's room and Joey Votto comes out with like his his legs wrapped up in, in ice or whatever. He's like, hey, what can I do for you? And then chatted with Joey Votto for a while. Um, interestingly enough, about how he was working on becoming trilingual. He had hired a Spanish tutor. I don't know to what extent he's continued with this, but uh, at the time he he was uh, he was regularly meeting with a Spanish tutor he had he had hired so he could better communicate with his teammates. Which I always thought was a really cool thing. Yeah, that is uh, that is being a leader in a clubhouse like, like that. That is uh, that's a really cool story. Um, I don't think I even wrote it. I think I just it's just this is it. This is a uh, exclusive 2013 breaking news. Uh, Joey Votto <laughs> may have had a tutor at some point to teach him Spanish. Uh, Tim, that is all the questions we've gotten, and we've we've gone longer than I said we would already. Uh, this is fun. I'm liking the live room thing. Yeah, I, I think you know you're, you're you, we work on the intro like we talked about. Uh, right. But other than um, that, I think, I think we're are, settling. I will say, if you are um, joining us on stage, please do mute your computer before you do so if you're listening on speakers. We had a little bit of an issue with that a couple times. Uh, one of them, I will say, was me. I opened up my computer <laughs> and this came on. So uh, I think it, don't throw anyone under the bus other than myself. Um, but it is something to be aware of, just like as if you were calling into WFN, because it's hilarious to me when that happens on WFN. And hey, I made it through the whole time without kicking myself out accidentally. Uh, and yeah, this is this was a we were we're gonna call this a success, and we're gonna cut it off before it goes off the rails. So Tim, 
Uh, thank you, as always. If you have a question for us and don't want to join us on stage, you can get at us on Twitter. Tim is at Tim Britton. I am at OG Ted Berg. You can email asktedberg at gmail.com. Uh, you can tweet at us. You can. We're available. We're eminently available online. So please uh, do ask us questions. Tim, uh, we will speak again next week, and, and uh, we will see where the Mets are at by then. By, by that point, we may no longer be trading for Joey Votto and may instead be, uh, be, be looking at the, at the 2023 draft class. <laughs> Things move fast in 162-game season in New York, as we know. Uh, until then, peace out. Adios. <laughs>